Welcome back to the 134th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including our modern censorship and how it's going to affect our liberal world. A article talking about how affirmative action should be illegal and not unconstitutional. And a final one speaking about Twitter and a few changes that have come down the pike and how I think they actually may be a good thing. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, obviously, censorship is normally framed in the idea of the government or a company telling you you can't say certain things, or your boss saying, hey, no, at this job, you cannot say these blah, 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 blah. But how does censorship manifest itself in your everyday life? You know, not Twitter, not someone telling you you can't say something like I mentioned before. How do you censor yourself? And have you done it more in the last few years? Do you find it annoying? Or do you go out and say whatever the heck you want and you care not a blip about what other people think or will do in reaction to your speech or your thoughts? I want to know because I do find myself coming and slowing down in certain situations and saying, okay, hey, maybe this is not the right thing to say here. And maybe that's a tactful approach to speaking, and maybe it's self-censorship. I've, sometimes I can't really tell the difference, and maybe that's because I've, ha- oh, I've grown up and I need to get out of that habit, but I want to know if this is commonplace. So let me know in the comment section down below what you have to say. So let's go to our first article about censorship that comes from Real Clear Politics. Censorship wounds worse than words. So they're trying to imply here that at the end of the day, words can hurt you and words could possibly cause you to kind of come back and, oh, oh, that hurts. I'm, I'm so I'm so offended. But is getting offended really worse than being limited from speaking your mind? And they're trying to speak about this uh, ideology that has really come forth within the United States and also within Britain, kind of the Anglo-American, the Western civilization hub, and how it's actually worse to censor somebody or to be censored than to be offended or offend somebody with words. And I've almost always agreed with this. My largest statement, and my dad always used to get frustrated with me when I would say this when I was younger, is words only have the meaning we give to them. Words only affect you how you decide to take them. And this is one of those key issues that when I look at the political divide, whatever side is more for free speech or anybody that advocates for free speech, even if you don't like the outcome of somebody else's speech, even if you don't like what they're saying, I am always going to side with that person for the most part. There may be some exceptions that I don't necessarily know about, but for the most part, this is one of those key issues that I don't care where you are in the political aisle, if we can agree that being able to say what you need to say, when you need to say it, what you want to say, when you want to say it, if we can agree on that, then I am going to shake your hand no matter how any of our other conversations about policy or about issues go, and I will say thank you for sitting down talking with me and thank you for expressing yourself and using your free speech to have a conversation with me even if I don't agree and I don't like what you're saying. 
I will die for your right to say what you say, even if I don't agree with what you say. Yes, I butchered the quote, but also I think it needs a more modern take than the way that it used to be framed. So let's jump to the first quote from this article. Quote, in the United States and Britain, ill-formed and poorly reasoned opinions about transgenderism, climate change, COVID-19, Islamic extremism, working class political inclinations, and voting patterns, race, sex, hate speech, and identity politics dominate progressive elite thinking and drive their policymaking. This alone would pose no special challenge to freedom and democracy. Misguided views, short-sighted laws, smug moralizing, and abuse of power leave their mark at the best of times. They will persist as long as human beings remain fallible, self-interested, subject to appetite and emotion, and desirous of wealth, status, and domination. The deeper concern is the determination on the part of journalists, professors, and university administrators, K-12 educators, government bureaucrats, high-tech titans, social media moguls, entertainment industry movers and shakers, and corporate executives, a preponderance of what used to be called the establishment, to silent dissents from progressive orthodox through law and popular opprobrium. That puts liberal democracy at risk itself, not least by promoting the right to injustically retaliate with bands of its own, end quote. So, wow, the author really tackles a lot there. But the underlying idea that he's getting at, and he's talking about all these different issues that we're divided on, and they're they're issues that are really hot topics, and some people don't like other people's opinions. This is, of course, true, and that's why they are mentioned here, because people have not only strong opinions, but very different opinions. We're very, very far apart on these ideas, and if we can't have a conversation about them, if you can't confront somebody and say, this is why you are wrong, this is why your opinion about this situation or your fact-based conclusions about this situation are maybe misleaded, maybe they are fact-based, but you're missing other crucial information in your decision-making process, if you can't come out and have that conversation and defy the orthodoxy, then you will never, ever solve these problems. Of course, you know, you're not hearing anything new from me on this one. Why it is very, very interesting the way he frames it is he frames it as a battle of power. He's saying it is the people who are powerful who are holding these ideas, and then they're trying to spread it out to a populace. And this is where free speech is even more important because when you speak truth to power, when you speak against a powerful institution or group of institutions that hold a certain ideology, a certain point of view, they have the ability to limit your access to, say, let's say you want to go into the entertainment industry. You want to star in a movie. If you don't have the right politics, if you're out there on social media broadcasting certain narratives and trying to defend your beliefs, then they could, in theory, stop you from getting a position. And it wouldn't even have to be on any of these issues brought up before. It could be that they believe that the earth is flat and they only want flat earthers to come to their set and they're basically discriminating against you or 
they are not allowing you to speak your opinion in order that you would be able to get this role. They were saying, oh, no, no, okay, you can believe what you want. I'm not going to infringe on that, but I don't want to hear any of your round-earther stuff when you're on the scene of the movie or you're on the set trying to get ready or you're in your different changing rooms. I don't want to hear any of that round-earther stuff. So when you have someone who is more powerful, and I hate framing things in terms of power, you could say who has more influence or is simply in a position to affect your life because they are paying for something, they are giving you a job, or they are your professor, the person that is teaching you, someone who has authority and is higher up the hierarchical structure. If those people are the ones that have these beliefs, this is why free speech is ever more important because it is necessary to push back against those institutions. And I'm not saying physically push back. I'm not saying you sit there and yell at your teacher. I'm saying at least having the ability to bring up discussion points and actually probe their thought process and for them to probe yours because the only way for them to realize that somebody else has a different opinion is if somebody else brings it up and has the conversation with them and has the ability to under free speech then this is why free speech is so important when you're going against things that are higher up in the structure of a society that, yes, could hold more power. And I think that's a more interesting way to frame what he's talking about here rather than just, oh, you need the ability to speak freely because it's a good thing. All right, so let's jump to a second quotation from this one. And it's the, the consequences of the current regime and the current way of thinking about how people have to really, what's the word I'm looking for here? They have to obey the way that other people think and the way that other people tell them to speak and the censorship that is in place, or else they will be kind of outcast, thrown to the side. And I think the author lays this out very, very obviously here and kind of poetically, not going to lie. Quote, where blasphemy is barred, Cursed of the cursing of the impure, the unclean, the vulgar is required. A favorite target for the West Wokes older white male members of the working class. In Rise of the Pigs, O'Neill explores the casual contempt with which British intellectual and political elites disparage white men who voted for Brexit as gammon, cured ham or bacon. So widespread was this use of their gammon slur in liberal and leftist chatter post-Brexit that in 2018, pig meat signified their unfitness for politics. The evidence? They vote against elite wishes. The elite solution? Limit public discussion by controlling the information that reaches the people. So let's pause there. You, you see here that the... Elite. He is now more heavily pushing into this idea that there is an elite who is against the people. And instead of taking on the ideas, they do exactly what anyone who believes they are better than does, which is, oh, those, those peasants, no, 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 they don't know what's good for them. Those gammon, they're no better than the bacon that I get from my pig. And this is a interesting defense mechanism because for some people it works some people listen to the pundits on news and they say oh 
wow, okay, they're really being dismissive of this person or this case, this ideology. It must not be worth the time to look into or to discuss further. But especially in our age of social media where you can see this hypocrisy or at least this snobbery across a lot of different people, instead of it being relegated to the elite houses where they have their dinners and then they come out to the people and they act nice and kind and maybe you can see a little bit here and there, now you see examples of it all the time on social media. So the fact that they think that this snobbery, this certain worldview, this way of approaching a situation by being arrogant and belittling the common people who voted for Brexit in this case is really, really stupid because a lot of people are fed up with this. A lot of people, when they hear, oh, no, 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 we know better for you. We at the World Economic Forum will tell you how to go about your life. No, people are like, no, don't you dare tell me how to go about my life, even if your policies are good, even if I agree with what you're saying. Don't come at it from such an arrogant angle. Come work with me, and then we can work on a policy solution together. You don't have to meet in some fancy Davos. Come to the ground. Come into the small town America. Come into the broken towns in Romania and have a conversation and work with the people rather than going to your intellectual high-minded cafe or dinner and snobbing it up with the rest of your friends believing that you are better than. And I think this is one of the very important points, or at least the important dichotomy that we see between how the elite and how people want the elite to actually pursue policy. If the elite come down and use their position as a place of good and actually work with common people and try to take their opinions into account, then... They will love what the elite are doing, and they will, even if they don't necessarily agree with the policy, they will at least admire them for coming down from their ivory tower. But if they stay on top of that ivory tower, and they just sit there and cabal with the rest of their friends, then eventually the people are going to run up that tower and push them out. And trust me, those elites cannot fly, no matter how much they think they can. So just keep it in mind. It's not just about the fact that we need free speech, but we need to make sure that the highest in our society believe in free speech as well, because, or even more broadly, we need to make sure that everybody values it as much as you and I may do, because if one person rises from the bottom and gets to the top where they are now an elite, they should hold those values to be self-evident and really focus in on free speech. And we need to make sure that the people above us also believe in free speech because otherwise they'll be willing to violate it. And they'll be willing to make sure that you can't say what you want to say when you have to or need to say it. All right, let's jump to our second article that comes from the Washington Post. Affirmative action should be illegal, not unconstitutional. And when I first read that headline... I was very, very intrigued because, to be honest, I understood there was a little bit of a difference, but I was wondering how that would actually be different in practice. I was like, well, wait, hold on. Okay, so if it's unconstitutional or illegal, it means that it won't happen anymore. And before I went further into the article, or as I went deeper into the article, I started to see where the author was coming from. I will started to see what the author was going to get at before they got to it. So I'm going to read you the first section, and I want to see if you can kind of tease out what they're going to say here. And if you don't, it's fine. I'll definitely get to that point. But I want to see 
if their argument is as self-evident if as I thought it was when I was reading through it. Because you can kind of feel where the author's leading you. And I just want to kind of give you a brain tease in the middle as well. And if you figure it out before we get down to the part where I actually tell you what they're saying directly, throw it in the comment section. Quote, Justice Paul, John Paul Stevens had it right in 1978. The Supreme Court shouldn't have ruled that college's affirmative action programs are unconstitutional. It should have ruled that they're illegal. The Supreme Court was considering Regents of University of California versus Bakke, its first major case about affirmative action in university admissions. Both parties in the case had asked for the ruling on whether the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, with its guaranteed equal protection to all people, allowed universities to take applicants' race into account. Stevens argued that the court did not need to answer that question to decide the case. Quote, our settled practice, he wrote, is to avoid the decision of constitutional issue if a case is fairly decided on statutory grounds. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, providing such a statutory ground, it forbids in any institution receiving federal money from subjecting any person to discrimination based on race. This does not say that such discrimination may be allowed to rectify the events of past discrimination or to contrast demographically representative student bodies, or to secure educational benefits from racial diversity. It flatly prohibits it, end quote. So, you can see this is part of the argument, which is, hey, in certain cases we should make sure that we don't use the Constitution when we don't have to, when there's a statu statute on the books, a bill on the books that clearly outlines this. And we can look to that and say, hey, then... This is not okay under this law. In the U.S. Congress, they passed it. They are representative of the people. And therefore, this law was passed and it holds true. And we don't have to go back to the Constitution. And yeah, I think that John Paul Stevens is, is right here. Why would you tie it to the Constitution and maybe have to work through some loopholes or really explain your rationale more thoroughly to a population that doesn't have time to always read judicial decisions and sit there and really grasp what's going on when they could just say, hey, you see that Civil Rights Act right there that we passed in 1964, one of the most popular pieces of legislation and one of the ones that had the largest impact on American society that basically everybody knows about? Yeah, we can just point to that. And then it'll also make more sense and it'll be in a more modern context than talking about the 14th Amendment, which I believe was passed in the 1800s. And I'm really sad that my historical knowledge on when the amendments, each amendment was passed. But yes, somewhere around the late 1800s, I'm pretty sure, uh, after the Civil War, if I'm not mistaken, was passed. But if I'm wrong, throw it in the comment section, let me know. But the justification is we have something more modern on the books, done by Congress, signed by the president. We don't need to go back to the Constitution. So why? Why is this important? Why does this have more of a ramification than just saying, oh, it would be convenient to do it as something that is comparing it to a statute rather than the Constitution? Have you figured it out yet? Maybe you have. Maybe I kind of gave away the ball a little bit, but... I'll read you why this author says this is the case and why I think it's an interesting argument, but I do disagree with it ultimately. Quote, the statutory opinion would, however, 
have two advantages. First, it would have been more persuasive. The case that the Civil Rights Act bars discrimination based on race is open and shut. The case that the Equal Protection Clause is more generalized phrasing forbids it is especially when practiced by a private institution such as Harvard is a bit trickier. Justice Clarence Thomas tried to establish the point with an originalist argument that seems to me only partially successful and won the endorsement of no other justices. Second, it would have been a humbler and more democratic decision. If the court ruled that Congress had outlawed university affirmative action programs, it would have left open the question whether Congress could reconsider that policy. Supporters of affirmative action would have had a legislative outlet for their concerns rather than being told that they would have to amend the Constitution or change the lineup of justices to get their policy that they wanted, end quote. So, yeah, you see this little clever sleight of hand, and you could see it coming, which is, hey, no, we need to say it's illegal in this case so that Congress can change it and make it legal to discriminate based on your race in college admissions. And I think it's a very interesting argument, and I think it is one that is very, very core to how some people view America, which is... Congress, they have the ability to create laws, they have the consensus of the population there in Washington, and if the people want to push for affirmative action, then they should be able to push for affirmative action. Even if the ideas of it are anti-American, they go against some of the founding documents that we have here in America, they should be able to push for those and change, and we should be able to update the system to benefit these populations. I think that is part of the reasoning behind this point of view. And I'm not saying that's necessarily not, I'm not saying that it's evil. I'm not saying that it's terrible. What I'm saying is I really don't agree with it. I think we do need to anchor this question to the 14th amendment or anywhere in the constitution because it is inherent racism. It is racism against a certain population who normally tests better And that's not because they are of that particular race. It's because they work harder for the most part. Or there are other intangible qualities to that person. Not their skin color, not their cultural background, not the DNA that makes up their body. There are more intangible characteristics that affect these outcomes more than their race does. And assuming based on the race of somebody that these characteristics are going to present themselves is inherently racist. And I think that this is not something that we should have in the American system whatsoever. So anchoring it in the Constitution, in my opinion, is important because it sets precedent that could be held by courts in the future saying, no, Congress, you're trying to put in affirmative action. They just passed a law and someone sues because they have standing. And the Supreme Court says, hey, no, no, no. We decided this back in Harvard and UNC versus, oh, wow, I feel terrible. Oh, versus the... American Institute of College Free College Admissions. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the other organization. But we established this back in 2023. No, you can't do this. I think that's important to set up that idea so that Congress won't try to do something like that because I think it's deeply, deeply racist, and I don't think that we should put pro-racist policies on the docket or put them into the American Codex when we've come so far since then, since the even the 19, 
60s. We've come very far in the 70s. We've come even further since the 1800s. We've come so far. Why would we regress? Why would we go backwards? Even if the intentions are of the noblest, noblest kind, it doesn't mean that searching for that one outcome that you want means that it's good for the country and good for everybody moving forward. Just my opinion on that one. I think the author is wrong to want it to be uh, illegal rather than unconstitutional, but I understand their argument. I think it is a very clever one as well. All right, let's jump to our last article from Alternet. Elon Musk announced temporary limits on how many tweets users can read. So, yeah, this was an interesting one when I first read it. I was thinking, wait, hold on, temporary, how long is temporary? And it seems to be that it's going to be a week or so, and Elon Musk is saying, hey, no, 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 we're only going to allow a certain amount of people to read, and the speculation is, oh, it's about the servers, there's not enough capacity at Twitter, or maybe it's a policy change that I would actually agree with on the part of Elon Musk, which is, hey, I'm the ultimate dictator to Twitter now. I'm seeing a lot of political division. I'm seeing too many people waste time on Twitter rather than doing amazing things, going out and building amazing products, and that would speak to him because he's an engineer, or reading amazing books. I see too many people wasting time on social media and just having arguments that are not fruitful. Now, maybe there are conversations that are important that you have on Twitter, and that's why he's not saying, hey, you can't do anything at all. But he's probably, if I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt, he's recognizing the terrible, terrible effect of social media. And he's saying, hey, we're going to limit how many people are able to really get their message out there by limiting the amount of tweets that people can read and, in theory, limiting the amount of tweets that people could send out a day or maybe a week. And I would agree with that. I am a anti-social media person. And let's be clear, I do believe social media is a beautiful thing. I am quite literally posting this episode on YouTube. And I will send a link out on Twitter. I will put it on Rumble. I'll put it on an RSS feed. And I do Twitter tirades. I understand how useful social media can be. But I see it as a tool, not as a way to entertain myself and to waste time going on there and having pointless conversations. Now, if you want to have a really important conversation, I think some of Neil deGrasse Tyson's tweets, while I don't necessarily agree with all his points, he is very reserved. I was reading his book, Starry Messenger, and it was it, it, he explained that he's very reserved on Twitter because he only says true things that are important, or at least he believes are true and are backed up by data. He only says true things that are important in certain situations and contexts, for the most part. And I admire that. I don't like when you get steeped in those long Twitter threads that are just pointless conversations with somebody that you're never going to meet in real life and you're never going to have to necessarily deal with. Or going on Instagram and just scrolling hour after hour, wasting time looking at cute puppy videos. Great. Puppy videos are amazing and you get a nice little dopamine hit. But once you get that one dopamine hit, you're going to want two more, then you're going to want three more, and you're just going to sit there wasting time rather than picking up a good book or learning about the history of America, which from the last segment, obviously I need to do because I didn't know exactly when the 14th Amendment was passed. And also I need to reread the plaintiff in the case against Harvard and UNC in order to be more well-informed. There's so much stuff we can do with our time. There's so many things we can do to be well-informed citizens. And I don't think sitting on Twitter and going back and forth and having unfruitful debates is the way to do that. Now, I do understand that Twitter is a way to get news, but 
at the end of the day, there are other apps that allow you to do that, like Flipboard. That's why this is called The Daily Flip. I use Flipboard to bring together conservative views, liberal views, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Daily Wire, cute videos, sustainable energy segments, technologies, articles. All of that can be done through Flipboard, and its sole purpose is to be a news conglomerator, not a social media website. And I think that Twitter, we just need to limit our use overall. So let's get to what Elon has to say. Quote, former Twitter chief executive officer Elon Musk announced Saturday that the social media giant is implementing a new policy restricting the number of tweets users can read in a day, NBC reports. The change comes just a week after Musk announced former NBC Universal Advertising sales chair Linda Yaccarino, who took the title of CEO. Must share the news via Twitter, writing, quote, to address extreme levels of data scrapping and system manipulation, we've applied the following temporary limits. Verified accounts are limited to reading 6,000 posts a day. Unverified accounts are to 600 posts a day. And new unverified accounts to 300 posts a day, end quote. So you can see he's limiting the amount of tweets you can read. I think it would be even more interesting and even more radical to limit the amount that you can tweet out. And he wouldn't like that because he tweets a lot. But I think you should be able to say, okay, no, you get five tweets a day. You get good five tweets. You have to really think about what's going into your tweets. Do you want to waste one of them having a heated, stupid discussion about the local dog park with one of your neighbors? Or do you want to have a tweet that's going to actually say a lot, have a deep meaning, and raise important questions rather than the stupid trolling that we see sometimes? And yes, trolling can be fun. Maybe you have that one tweet a day that you spend on a really well-crafted trolling comment against somebody or a really quick-witted thing that you post when CNN puts out a certain article or Fox News puts out an article that you don't like. But I think that this is going to be a good thing if it was a policy that keeps on going. It's not going to be. He's saying it's temporary. But maybe if they see positive changes in the algorithm and what people are able to post and interaction between different communities and things like this, Maybe they'll implement it long-term. Who knows? And if they do, you'll hear me yelling from the top of the mountain saying, hey, baby, that's what I'm talking about, Elon. You're my man. He already is my man for the most part. And I also do think it's funny that now they're calling him former Twitter chief executive officer, not the lead of Tesla, the lead of SpaceX, the lead of the boring company. No, no, no. It's the chief uh, executive or former chief executive officer of Twitter. This man does so much with his time. And honestly, I'm surprised he has time to read and go on Twitter with all the other stuff he is doing. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Paul Trails. Sleeping dog gets woken up and gets playful revenge. So disturbing someone's sleep is not a good habit, and it's something that children seem to do all the time, even when they're on vacation. Quote, but when that peaceful rest is disturbed, you might get a delirious reaction from your beast. The phrase, let sleeping dogs lie, applies in these particular circumstances in which a young girl decided to wake up a pup and get her just desserts. End quote. And, you know, the little one, you know, you really shouldn't have disturbed his sleep. And when he was disturbed, he's going to come and get that, like I said, that it just deserves. He's coming for a little bit of revenge, and he is going to get you all sandy. Quote, it starts with two dogs lying in the sand with a young girl gently nudging them with her feet. 
She continues to kick with no response from the buds while the text says, wait for it. Suddenly, one pops up, shakes off, and proceeds to dig into the sand, covering her. End quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article or read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find a link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post, like I said earlier, Twitter tirades and links to the podcast on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And you know what? Maybe I'll go on and take advantage of that extra 6,000 tweets that I can read because I did verify the account so I can upload that content for you. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.